Hey everybody, Glenn here. I need to let you know about a change in the way that we are distributing the bi-monthly ballots that determine what we cover on the show. For technical reasons that I will not bore you with, we are not going to be sending those directly to your email anymore. Instead, what we're going to do is send them to your Patreon message inbox. And the reason that I'm here saying this to you on the air before the show is that we know that people don't always see those messages. They just, uh, they don't get forwarded to your email or, or give you some other kind of notification when you log into Patreon or something like that. And so as you are hearing this message, you have the ballot in your Patreon message inbox. And if you did not get that forwarded to your real email, which is way more convenient, obviously, you'll have to go to Patreon to get it. But it is there for you now if you are a Patreon supporter at the Archon level or up. And if you aren't a Patreon supporter at the Archon level or up, now's a really great time to do that. There's some awesome stuff on this ballot, including the next chapter in The Gunslinger by Stephen King. There's a Conan story from Robert E. Howard. There's Poe. There's George R. R. Martin. And they can't all make it onto the show. It's up to you which of those we do. So if you aren't already with us, please join us. Do it now. But all right, let's get on with the show. Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. Today on the show, we are starting The Inmost Light, a novella by Arthur Mackin. This was first published in 1894. And because it is a novella, it's fairly long. We're going to do two episodes on this one. This episode will be the recap, and then we'll follow up next episode with a discussion. If you're a fan of Arthur Mackin, we've also covered uh, his story, The Soldier's Rest. We've also done The Bowman and Out of the Earth. But we've recently put The Soldier's Rest up on Patreon, and we'd love for you to check it out. That story's more of a more of a curiosity, I think, uh, than than this one is. It might be a little out of what Arthur Mackin uh, was typically known for writing, though he was also extremely well known for writing these World War One stories. And this Soldier's Rest is one of them. In Most Light, of course, Glenn, as you said, was was published in 1894, pre-World War One story, looking at uh, turn of the century, also looking at what's happening in pulp fiction as he's around. I mean, there's some clear references to Arthur Conan Doyle in this story, I think, or at least one that I'm going to want to talk about. <laughs> I, I really love this story. I, I've been a little let down, maybe not let down, but looking forward to getting to this Arthur Mackin. And I am so pleased uh, that we read this story. I loved it. Uh, it's a strange tale. It's strangely written, but also beautifully written. Uh, and I couldn't have been more excited to crack open the book and read the first page and be like, ah, yes, this is the Arthur Mackin that I've been promised. <laughs> but it is it is a strange tale. It does, it does live up to uh, the weirdness, I think. So why don't we just get right into it? Well, you're not alone, Brandon. We have heard from listeners for sure who have said, are you ever going to stop doing all these World War I Mackin stories and get to the Mackin stories that Lovecraft cared about? And, and here we are. So yeah, let's get into it. One evening in autumn, when the deformities of London were veiled in faint blue mist and its vistas and far-reaching streets seemed splendid, Mr. Charles Salisbury was slowly pacing down Rupert Street, drawing nearer to his favorite restaurant by slow degrees. So that's the opening line of The Inmost Light. And it it is, I think, a, a pretty beautiful way just to describe a dude heading out to get some dinner by himself. But I do think that we're going to want to pay particular attention to the words deformity and veil that really stand out in what is otherwise a pretty banal line. 
So Salisbury is walking to his favorite restaurant when he uh, quite literally bumps into an old acquaintance. And this is a man named Dyson, whom he hasn't seen in five years. They grab dinner together, they catch up, and Dyson has a weird tale to tell. And of course, right, that's what we're here for. It's what Mackin is going to be doing here. But Dyson's explanation for his last five years, I have to say, is great. So before we get to the weird tale, I want to I delve into his explanation here. He says that he was broke and the only things on his resume were an education in the classics and a dislike for business. <laughs> and so uh, he decides that the only thing to do with that resume is to begin a career as a writer. And at this, uh, Salisbury says something like, but you seem to have a lot of money, even though you're a writer. And uh, Dyson says that writing is highly rewarding. But then he explains that, well, you know, he inherited a lot of money from an uncle he'd never met. And all of this, all of this is just a, a joke at the start of what is going to be an otherwise fairly creepy story. But it is Mackin having a bit of fun at his own expense, but also having a bit of fun at our expense, too. I mean, this is basically the exact story of this podcast network. <laughs> right. It is really funny. I think Mackin in general is having a lot of fun uh, in writing this story. It's a very light story in terms of the approach to the material. And it's, I don't know, it's got a lot of charisma kind of seeping out of it. I loved this story. Now, there's, there's this wonderful scene uh, in a novel called The Rebel Angels by Robertson Davies, where a scoundrel type character imposes on someone enough to get a dinner at a restaurant for free. And this opening scene reminded me of that. I mean, there is a lot of comedy to be mined in, uh, I don't know, an overbearing mooch or somebody perceived to be an overbearing mooch getting their dinner partner to keep ordering more and more food and, and drink to keep the evening going, which I think is kind of what's happening here. But Mackin doesn't lean too heavily on the comedy, though I think it's obvious by the end of the story that regardless of Dyson's financial situation, Salisbury would gladly wait another five years to run into Dyson again. But, but, <laughs> but that being said, Dyson is an awesome character. Mockin's characterization of him is so fantastic. I mean, Dyson might be a funhouse mirror of Mackin himself, who inherited some money from his father and so was able to focus on writing. But Glenn, I also have to ask, are you Dyson reborn? <laughs> I mean, I, I hope that I'll inherit some money from a relative I don't know. I think someday, I guess, uh, simply because I would not wish death on any of my actual relatives. But Dyson is a, but you're right. Dyson is a great character, and he is a recurring character. Mackin uses him in at least one more story that I'm aware of. I think this is his first appearance, though, uh, which is just uh, was randomly generated on the ballot, I suppose. But I'm glad that we're getting them in this order, and uh, we'll see if he's in any more than just just two stories. But he is a really great character. And, you know, I think what we're building towards here is, of course, that all of this is really a frame narrative for the story that Dyson is going to end up telling. And so this is the the trope. This is the literary device of the late 19th century of, you know, tricking your reader into reading a weird story when you think that you're actually reading uh, a comedy of, of manners, uh, you know, about some, some bros having dinner together. And <laughs> Mackin is a real genius at this. Yeah, and this will be more evident a little later on. I have I have some notes on that. I also want to point out the description that you mentioned, Glenn, about London's deformities and, and the blue veil. Uh, this is beautiful descriptive writing in just a sentence, and this novella is full of beautiful descriptive writing. But it's 
a great way to talk about a cityscape too, especially as we're going to look at contrasts in London's cityscape of what London is as a city, of what people think of it as and what people uh, experience it as and how much more London there is than what can just be encountered in, in a walk to dinner. Um, also, maybe a comment on how the building up of a city destroys or deforms the natural landscape, how a cityscape destroys a landscape. Uh, we're going to be looking at some of this stuff in the in the discussion. This is a moment, the, the late 19th century, when London is really, really expanding, really the, the Edwardian period. London just blows up in terms of uh, in terms of size, balloons out. And we've seen Algernon Blackwood, who's a contemporary of Mackin's, deal with this this same type of thing in his ghost story that we did, the, the first John Silence occult detective story. I would love to get back to, to some of those as well. And um, I don't know, that might be something we take up in our uh, year of review show as, uh, as a, a theme for uh, for this year, or a theme at least that we haven't addressed head on yet. But yeah, let's uh, let's get to where Mackin is going to be dealing with London here. I mean, first thing we should say as we get back into the recap here is that it is totally unclear how much writing Dyson is actually doing so much <laughs> as he's saying he is a writer. And he really indicates here that what he mostly does is study what he calls the physiology of London. And he goes on to say that he's interested in the city of London as an organism, and he likes to get to know its neighborhoods and streets. And he he really admires that London neighborhoods are difficult to define and classify and and, and pin down, that there are uh, there's secrets everywhere in London. But Salisbury disagrees. He thinks London is dull compared to a city like Paris. That's the example he brings up. And Dyson takes this bait, and he says he's going to illustrate his point by telling Salisbury about the Harlesden case. And this is where things are going to get weird, right? So far, this has all really been a frame story for the Harlesden case, though though Mackin is playing with the nature of a frame story a little bit more than this. But let's talk about the Harlesden case. So Harlesden is a neighborhood in northwest London that at this time was really on the outskirts of the city. It was still just a, a village a century previously. So this is what we're talking about here with the urban growth of London. And Dyson's involvement in this story that he's about to tell comes about only because he likes exploring London. And what he likes about Harlesden is that it is the end of the city, that you can walk down a street or, or out someone's back garden and just suddenly be in the country without any warning. The city just stops. Dyson was in Harlesden. He had a, a beer at the local pub, and then he went outside for a smoke, and he walked to one of these meadows. And as he's looking around and enjoying his tobacco, he sees a woman in the window of the nearest house. That something is wrong with her. And, and and Dyson struggles to describe what that is. It's, it's not really something in physical terms, but he says that he knew that he had seen something hellish, something with an unquenchable fire. That's the phrase that he uses. And it's a really disturbing experience for Dyson. I mean, even only catching sight of this woman for a second, it was really disturbing for him. And as he's heading back to the street and then home, he sees that this is the house of a medical doctor. Uh, Dyson calls him uh, Dr. Black, though that's not really his name. And he even sees Dr. Black, and Dr. Black is fairly ordinary and dull. But Dyson decides to investigate, and so he returns to Harleston, and uh, the local pub in particular, another time, and he discovers that the doctor has an uncommonly pretty wife. Uh, except that, come to think of it, no one's seen her in a few months. 
isn't that strange? But uh, <laughs> that's all the investigating that Dyson actually does. He, he is not, in fact, an occult detective. After all, that's not what kind of story this is. But a few months later, Dr. and Mrs. Black make it into the newspaper because Mrs. Black is dead. And the cause of death was some strange brain condition. Uh, and one doctor described it this way, that her brain didn't even resemble a human brain at all. Uh, but it wasn't like the brain of an animal either. It was something wholly different. And so now Dyson does want to do some investigating, but this is actually where the tale ends at this point because they've finally finished their dinner. And in fact, the, the waitstaff is staring at them because they would like them to pay up and, and get out. But uh, Dyson and Salisbury arrange to get together again so that Salisbury can hear the rest of the story. And uh, we will pick up with that eventually. Right. They, they've stayed far past the point where they can turn the table over. The waitstaff is <laughs> really impatient. And, and it turns out that Dyson is the real protagonist of the story. And Salisbury is more of an interlocutor, even though much of the story is from Salisbury's point of view. And this, to me, is an interesting narrative choice. It's something I want to ask you about in the discussion. But before I talk about Dyson's weird tale, I want to point out why Salisbury thinks London is ultimately dull. In Paris, at least in Salisbury's perspective, each neighborhood has its own character, but London neighborhoods are mixed. You can find bohemians living in the same neighborhood as housewives and stuff like that. But the real issue in Salisbury mind is that you never hear about a, quote, really artistic crime being committed. And it's this accusation of Londoners uh, that makes Dyson tell his tale. And the Harleston case is, in Dyson's mind, one such artistic crime. And Harleston, as Dyson is quick to point out, he's a great conversationalist, by the way, on, on, the, on the face of it, Harleston is the dullest place in all of London. It has no character. And Glenn, as you pointed out, it's basically the countryside. It's like the liminal zone between London and uh, the countryside, between the city proper and, and the country proper. The way Machen is able to build on dialogue is something I'm going to point out later. He, it almost seems as though his characters are really listening to one another. And Dyson's mind is very sharp, even though it seems a little disorganized. And that's going to become clearer later on. I want to highlight something else about this section, which is Mackin's descriptive prose. It's on full display in Dyson's narration. His description of the movement from London proper to Harleston is gorgeous, and it's a little haunting. But what I want to read here is the description of the face that Dyson sees in the window. Give a sense of how Mackin is approaching horror. Dyson says this. He says, it was as if I had had an electric current down my spine. And yet for some moment of time, which seemed long, but which must have been very short, I caught myself wondering what on earth was the matter. Then I knew what had made my very heart shudder and my bones grind together in agony. As I glanced up, I had looked straight towards the last house in the row before me, and in an upper window of that house, I had seen for some short fraction of a second a face. It was the face of a woman, and yet it was not human. You and I, Salisbury, have heard in our time, as we sat in our seats in church in sober English fashion, of a lust that cannot be satiated, and of a fire that is unquenchable, but few of us have any notion of what these words mean. I hope you never may, for as I saw that face in the window, with the blue sky above me and the warm air playing in gusts about me, 
I knew I had looked into another world, looked through the window of a commonplace brand new house and seen hell open before me. And he goes further on to describe her face as that of a, of a satyr, like a, a face that evokes dark lust and perhaps pagan thoughts and rituals. I, I'm also really glad that Mackin, when he has the brain specialist describe the horror that was Mrs. Black's brain, uh, I'm glad he restrained himself from referring to any area near the pineal gland. Uh, that may have been a bridge <laughs> too far for this story, but I was looking for the reference. But really what I'm most interested in at the end of chapter one, and it's because I love the characters of Salisbury and Dyson so much. I think these are just fantastic stock characters. Uh, what I was really interested in was whether or not the bill was split or Salisbury paid for the whole meal. Right. But we're actually going to discover that Dyson really does have quite a bit of money. So they, I, I actually think that Dyson might have picked up the the, the tap here. Uh, I don't think he's actually, I mean, I, I know you characterized him as being kind of a, a, a mooch, you know, a mooch with a tail. I actually think that he's the one being generous and being magnanimous, but the price of it is that you have to listen to his, his weird fiction story. And hey, he's not a good writer, so maybe this isn't a good story. Though, actually, it turns out this is is a great story. Yeah, that that's really true. And Salisbury is really the bore and the dull one here. But it's his sense of who Dyson is that that I'm kind of referring to. Like I think Salisbury's just kind of running the tally in his mind, like how much am I going to pay out here and would be surprised for Dyson to actually have have the money he's he's talking about. Right. I mean, at some point early on in this story, Salisbury even says to Dyson, well, I thought you were very close to actually being one of these crazy people who wears sandwich boards with uh, doom messages on them. And Dyson is like, yeah, I was almost that broke. I was almost that person, but now I've got money. And so I'm, I'm, I'm not. But it is interesting that Salisbury does not seem to be able to stop thinking about Dyson in those terms. Yeah, the, the relationship between these two characters is actually really quite interesting from a craft perspective. Perspective, you know, what Mackin is doing here. And I, I know we will take that up in the discussion, which will be fun. Before we move on, I do want to comment too, just on how beautiful that description that you read is this, this numinous, this maybe metaphysical description of seeing hell in the form of Mrs. Black and just looking through this window and having this sensation, even though he's not really able to you know, describe this the way that uh, you might like to describe to a painter, you know, to some, for, so someone could do a portrait of Mrs. Black. It's really superb weird fiction writing. All right. So even though Dyson is the one with the tail, it's Salisbury we're following, at least for now. And and Salisbury sets out for his home. And this is actually where he thinks about Dyson and how close he is to being a crazy person wearing that sandwich board. But uh, it starts to rain really hard and it's basically raining sideways. And so he ducks down a side street to get out of this horizontal rain, or, you know, at least the horizontal part of it, I guess. And, uh, you know, he's really looking for a pub where he can wait out the storm. It's, uh, you know, that's solid advice, but he can't find a pub. And then he realizes that he's actually a little bit lost, even though he's not far from where he lives. He takes shelter in a doorway and he, he tries to dry off a bit and, and also get his bearings. And he's just standing there when a couple having a loud argument come walking by. The woman is angry that the man has been drinking and also hitting on other women at the pub. And she says that she's through supporting him. She's through doing his errands for him. And she crinkles up some piece of paper and she throws it on the street and Salisbury picks it up and puts it in his pocket. Now, he doesn't look at this paper until the, the next morning when he's back home. And 
All that's on it is a a note that does not make a whole lot of sense, but here's what it says. Q has had to go and see his friends in Paris. Traverse handle S. And then the next bit of this note is in quotation marks. Once around the grass, and twice around the lass, and thrice around the maple tree. And all of this is meaningless to Salisbury. It's also meaningless to us, but it is not going to be for long. All of this is a pretty simple scene, at least the way that I've recapped it. But Mackin actually makes this really creepy. He really does make it creepy. He captures the mood of wandering around after in what T.S. Eliot might describe as a tobacco trance uh, after hearing some really disquieting news. Salisbury, as Mackin describes him, has a constitutional dislike for paradox. So he's lost in his head and wandering around in the rain. And Mackin's language here in the opening of chapter two is really just delightful. He writes about Salisbury's experience of the evening in this way. He says this, he had been forced to listen in almost absolute silence to a strange tissue of improbabilities strung together with the ingenuity of a born meddler in plots and mysteries. <laughs> I mean, I love this. It makes me want to say tissue <laughs> instead of tissue. <laughs> this is the language of folks that you need those S's. The, the uh, consonants there is really great. But this Mackin is so much more enjoyable to me, I have to point out, than the one who wrote The Bowman and The Soldier's Rest. It's it's just so much better than those stories. But the, the point I'm making here is that to Salisbury, there's actually no mystery at all. The woman had a brain disease and she looked strange as a result. But then we get this piece of paper and this piece of paper is fairly important to the rest of the story. And I wonder how... You know, this couple that we see fighting here and the woman throws away the paper actually factors into what is happening in the rest of the plot. And maybe we'll look into that. I don't I don't know if there are anything more than just this weird coincidence that takes place. But I think coincidence is very important to the unfolding of this of this plot. I should also mention that this little doggerel that, that Salisbury finds becomes a persistent intrusive thought that he can't escape. So he's glad for the diversion of Dyson's company when the, when the Thursday, the, the day they meet again, rolls around. Right. So we're there now. The, the day has come for Salisbury to visit Dyson and to hear the rest of the story about uh, Mrs. Black and her, her strange alien brain, I guess. Dyson's place, by the way, it is really quite a posh place. Like he really is loaded. He's got a lot of money. And uh, both of them are going to have some Benedictine to drink, and they're going to have a good smoke while he finishes the story. And uh, this sounds really, really delightful to me right now. (laughs) But uh, after Dyson read this newspaper account, he went to see the doctor who's done the inquest. And that doctor told him that he is sure that Dr. Black killed his wife. And also, he thinks that Dr. Black was perfectly justified in doing so. But he just says that although her face looked perfectly fine while she was there dead on his operating table, he knew, he could just tell, that her face would have been terrifying to behold when she was alive. And her brain was demonic. That's actually what he meant when he told the reporter that it was neither human nor animal, not an alien brain, but a demonic brain. And the doctor concludes by saying, whatever Mrs. Black was, she wasn't fit to stay in this world. So that's the end of that conversation. But of course, there is much more to the story. For one, this bit about her face rings true with Dyson's own experience, as, as we've heard you, you read into the microphone, Brandon. And so Dyson does some more investigating. 
He interviews people in Harlesden, like the delivery boy and so on, but he doesn't get anywhere with that. Uh, And on top of that, at this point, Dr. Black has moved away. And so it seems like that's the end of it. But then one day, while Dyson is just walking around the city like he enjoys doing, he encounters an old man with a cane who loses his hat in the wind and Dyson recovers it for him. And of course, that old man is Dr. Black. Now, obviously, he's much changed. He's somehow aged very quickly, also very poorly. And Dyson doesn't let on that he knows who he is and he befriends him. And he's actually invited into Dr. Black's life, which uh, he's now living out in a shabby rented room in a house. And Dr. Black never says anything at all about his old life, never mentions his wife. And Dyson, and maybe we should say Mackin, uh, never clearly states what the two men talk about during the several weeks that they are friends. Uh, They're really just spending this time smoking and talking together in Dr. Black's room. But Dyson says that Dr. Black held medical theories that would make the wildest dreams of Paracelsus and the Rosicrucians seem mundane. Uh, Brandon's going to explicate that in just a moment. But here, let's just read a huge block of text to see what Mackin is up to, to see what he's doing here in this story. I suggested that something he had said was in flat contradiction to all science and all experience. No, he answered, not all experience, for mine counts for something. I am no dealer in unproved theories. What I say I have proved for myself, and at a terrible cost. There is a region of knowledge which you will never know, which wise men seen from afar off shun like the plague, as well they may. But into that region I have gone. If you knew... If you could even dream of what may be done, of what one or two men have done in this quiet world of ours, your very soul would shudder and faint within you. What you have heard from me has been but the merest husk and outer covering of true science, that science which means death, and that which is more awful than death to those who gain it. No, when men say that there are strange things in the world, they little know the awe and the terror that dwell always with them and about them. So... You know, that's super vague. I mean, it's a classic weird fiction technique, right? But it's vague and we should pause and deal with it. Yeah, it is a little vague, but it turns out that this is an extraordinarily well-crafted story. And and while descriptive language abounds throughout the text, there is not a word of dialogue wasted in the way that Mackin builds ideas upon one another. Everything fits together beautifully. When Dyson is interviewing the brain specialist, the the specialist begins by asking if Dyson is a man of science. Then the brain specialist goes on a short diatribe about how dualism is a real thing, that is, there's a distinct difference between matter and spirit. And here we're faced with two substances again in a weird fiction story. (laughs) And, And the brain specialist says, no one recognizes more decidedly than I do the impassable gulf, the fathomless abyss that separates the world of consciousness from the sphere of matter. We know that every change of consciousness is accompanied by a rearrangement of molecules in the gray matter. And that is all. And he goes on to say that Mrs. Black's brain, as you pointed out, Glenn, was like the brain of a, of a devil or demonic. That is that some great change in consciousness had taken place and, and rendered her brain in such a way that reflected an, an evil spiritual being. And so Dr. Black had to kill his wife because she was pure evil. That's what we're led to believe here. But the effect that the changes of consciousness But the effect that the changes of consciousness have on the brain or body 
are also evident in the transformation of Dr. Black. And, and here is where we get the comparison to Dr. Black with Paracelsus and the Rosicrucians. Dyson says that, I think the wildest dreams of Paracelsus and the Rosicrucians would appear plain and sober fact compared with the theories I have heard him, Dr. Black, earnestly advance in that grimy den of his. The Rosicrucians kind of made a prophetic figure out of Paracelsus in the 17th century. Paracelsus was a physician and a chemistry innovator that was focused on the harmonic balance between people and nature and also the achieving a harmonic balance within people, within individuals themselves. And he put forth a theory of, of three humors. I mean, many of us are aware of the, the four humors. Uh, Paracelsus's humors were salt, sulfur, and mercury, and that the body was constantly working towards some alchemical mode of balance between these humors. Paracelsus, it turns out, was also obsessed with the purity of the spirit and the body and stuff like that. But I think that what this reference is driving at is the obsession of the Rosicrucians with Paracelsus' uh, research into alchemy and the purity of the spirit. And and really, what Mackin is saying here is that this branch of esoteric knowledge is something that Dr. Black has gone far beyond in his studies and research. And it's this region, this area of study that Dr. Black refers to that makes you know the soul shudder. This region is usually what we find in cosmic horror stories. Not that we are necessarily alone in an uncaring universe, but that there are horrible things beyond our comprehension that make us mad to gaze upon them or to study them. And if our conscious of minds awakens to them, we're toast. Yeah, Paracelsus figures here as as kind of a quack, right? That's the idea here is that uh, he, by invoking Paracelsus and telling us that Dr. Black went even further than that, he's saying that he had really just crazy ideas about people's bodies, about the nature of our bodies or the nature of our selves. And that's a nice shorthand way to do it. Paracelsus is a super interesting historical figure. He's kind of the Isaac Newton of biology in the scientific revolution. And, and usually if I'm doing a survey class on the, the history of the, the world since 1500 or so, you know, modernity, basically, I do a big unit on the scientific revolution. But one of the things that we do is ask how scientific was the scientific revolution? And Paracelsus and Isaac Newton are two of the figures that I will hold up as examples to show they're not really maybe scientific the way that we would think of being scientific. Yeah, they really did advance our knowledge of physics and math and biology, but also they had some real, real crazy ideas as well. And uh, it's something students really get a kick out of. So yeah, I'm glad, I was glad to see Paracelsus here. I wish we talked more about Paracelsus, uh, just, you know, out on the street with people. <laughs> well, perhaps we'll have the opportunity someday when we end up wearing sandwich boards to say, uh, <laughs> pay us a dollar to talk about Paracelsus. <laughs> right. Because Dyson is clearly spending this money at an alarmingly fast rate. So he is going to end up there and uh, I don't know. <laughs> we'll, we'll be there too. That's the only route this podcast network is, uh, is heading. Well, Dyson's story is not yet concluded, but it doesn't go where we might expect, or at least not where I was expecting it at this point. Dr. Black is not about to enlist Dyson's aid in, you know, crazy science stuff. He's also not about to perform experiments on him. Nothing like that. Instead, what Dr. Black does is die. 
And this happens while Dyson is out of town. And when he drops by, he learns from the landlady that the doctor had gone out one day. It was normal custom. And then he came back and when he got to his room, he just started yelling and cursing. And he came downstairs shouting about how he'd been robbed of something extremely valuable, something worth millions. And then he dropped dead. Well, the landlady checked out his room, and there was a, a tin box that was opened on the bed, but the thing that had been in it was clearly gone. But still, she knows that her tenant didn't have anything valuable because he was always behind on his rent. And she also knows that no one could have gotten into the house without her hearing it unless they came in by the window, and there is no way up to that window. So that's fine. That's all fine. But now, that really is the complete tale. Uh, Dyson never found out any more about the death, and murder it may have been, of Mrs. Black. So now Dyson asks Salisbury what he thinks, and Salisbury thinks that Dyson has made the tale more mysterious than it really is. He thinks the, the doctor was speaking of demonic brains metaphorically. Dyson disagrees, but quickly just gets up and gets more Benedictine and more pipe tobacco. And now it is Salisbury's turn to tell his tale about the mysterious note in the alley. And when he's done, he gives the note to Dyson, who is very interested in deciphering it. And Salisbury just tells Dyson that he can keep it. He doesn't want to be bothered with any more mysteries. And so Salisbury leaves the story. And now it's clear that this business of meeting with Dyson is really a setup for the trope that we associate, as you pointed out, with Edwardian fiction, where men get together and tell weird or scary tales to one another. Uh, though, of course, this story was written just prior to the period we'd call, you know, the Edwardian period. So it's really a late Victorian tale. And this this trope is established in the late Victorian era. And that, that I mean, that's just a note of history and dates. And I don't know. It's an Edwardian trope. Victoria might have still been on the throne when this was written. Right. This is what's problematic about the uh, periodization that we do for English literature based on the monarchs, because what we're really trying to say is fin de secla. We're really trying to say that this is a trope from about 1880 to World War I. But because that period is interrupted by a, uh, a, a regnal change in England, we break that into two distinct literary periods where on the continent and even in America, we just identify, we can just identify it as fin de secla. Maybe we should just start using that. I don't know. I'm going to start a movement here. <laughs> yeah, well. We'll see how far it goes. I'm sure it'll gain traction. <laughs> in any event, Dyson, it turns out, is, as we pointed out, a recurring fixed character in Machin's fiction. And he stumbles on these sorts of weird stories now and again. And again, I'm confronted with Salisbury's presence in this story. He's not interested in the outcome of any mysteries here. And now it's up to Dyson to take us to the end of the tale. Yeah, we are very near the end here. So... After Salisbury leaves, Dyson gets on the case of Travers Handle S, uh, which is to say the case of the note. And after a few days, he figures it out. He heads to Soho, which uh, Mackin describes as international and cosmopolitan in character. And he goes to Handel Street. I should probably really be pronouncing that Handel Street, uh, where he finds a corner shop called Travers, not Traverse. And inside, the shopkeeper starts to inquire how he can help. But Dyson cuts him off. Once around the grass, and twice around the lass, and thrice around the maple tree, he says. And when the shopkeeper hesitates, he invokes the name of Q and says, Remember, I hold your life in my hands. And the shopkeeper now addresses Dyson as Mr. Davies. I guess that's who he's been expecting here. And then he slinks into the back and returns with a small parcel for Dyson. And back home, Dyson opens it. 
Inside is a jewel. It's something like a, a large opal. And now the room blazes with a thousand colors, with all the glories of a painted window, the blue of far skies, the green of the sea by the shore, and the red of the ruby, and deep violet rays. And in the middle of all, it seemed aflame with fire. But that's not the only thing in the box. There's a little notebook, too. And it has the name of Dr. Stephen Black in it. And that is where we're going next. We've got just three pages left in the story, and it is going to be Dr. Black's journal. Mackin tells us that Dyson considers himself to be the Wellington of mysteries. And this must be a reference to (laughs) Arthur Conan Doyle's coining of the phrase, the Napoleon of crime, referring to Moriarty. This phrase was first used in The Final Problem by Arthur Conan Doyle, which was published just a year prior to the publication of The Inmost Light. It's just a fun note, I think, uh, to consider as we think about what Mackin is actually up to with this Dyson character. But It also makes us wonder about Dyson's investigative method, which is wholly different from that of Sherlock Holmes, if it can even be called a a method. Something to keep in mind as we as we near the end of the story and prepare for our discussion episode is just this, like who is Dyson and why this comparison to, to Sherlock Holmes? I will say, though, that as one note, that Dyson relies upon happenstance and roaming around more than any sort of methodical or formal process to solve this mystery. Maybe as we see in this interaction with the shopkeeper, he also relies on the force of personality as well, but we're really close to the end of the story. And I just want to know what's in that journal. Yeah. Well, let's get to the journal then. And it it is really more of a confession than a journal. Dr. Black explains that when he was younger, he was obsessed with certain curious and obscure branches of knowledge. But When he fell in love and married and began his professional life, he gave all of that up. But it came calling to him. He he felt compelled to begin his experiments again. And he set up a lab in his new house and he tinkered and he went as far as he could go without a human to experiment on. And so his wife. Now, he does not compel her, at least not with force or tricks, but he does tell her what he wants to do. And she begs him not to, but then she agrees to it. And what he wants to do is remove her soul. And he knows that when he does, something else, something unspeakable, will replace the soul in her body. And all she asks is that when it does, he destroy her body. And that's what happens. He he sucks out her soul. He puts it in this opal. This is what he's using his laboratory equipment for. I guess we don't really get a description of that. And then he kills the monster that she's become now that something else has moved into her body. And we don't get any details about that. And that is it. That's the confession. And now we are back with Dyson. He inspects the opal again and he smashes it on the ground. There's a hiss like steam in a teapot and yellow smoke comes out of it. And then a white light shoots out of the smoke and out of Dyson's window and up into the air. And the jewel is now blackened and burned on the floor. And that is the end of the story. I mean, this is a hell of an experiment to perform on a loved one. I I will say that by the time we got to the end of this story, I was shocked by its similarities to Thomas Ligotti's Purity, which we covered some time ago. The first Ligotti story that we covered, we were faced with the question of Mackin's influence on Ligotti. And we did a little bit of research and found that Ligotti does count Mackin among his influences. They have very different aims as writers, but I can't help but to see the germ of purity in this Mackin tale. Absolutely. And in fact, 
even my mental image of Dr. Black's house was the house in purity, even though we're told that Dr. Black's house is this very nice new upper middle class house, right? In this like new subdivision of London versus uh, being in the almost abandoned slums of uh, ruined uh, Detroit, more or less, I guess it was that city was supposed to be totally opposite situations, totally opposite looking houses. Yet the parallels in the story were so clear that that was my mental image of this this laboratory. Yeah, it's really great. And it's just, I don't know, it makes me want to read more Ligotti again and, and more Mackin as well. And one thing I admire about this, this story, uh, The Inmost Light, is that Mackin does give us everything we need to know in the story as he tells it. I mean, if we rely on the testimony of the brain specialist, we can be certain that Mrs. Black became a demon of some kind and that Dr. Black killed her and that this was the right thing to do. Dr. Black was naturally in the wrong, though, in performing this experiment, but no one would be able to prove what had caused the change in Mrs. Black. And so, in essence, Dr. Black's experiment is pointless. It's really just an obsession of Dr. Black's more than it is about studying something useful that he can publish and change the scientific consensus on something. I mean, we're left once again with the mad scientist trope that Michael Crichton so eloquently sums up in Jurassic Park when he says scientists are actually preoccupied with accomplishment. They are focused on whether they can do something. They never stop to ask if they should do something. I brought this quote up a few times over the, the years on Elder Side because I'm always trying to tie non-Tom Clancy techno thrillers to the weird fiction tradition for some reason. I've really gone far <laughs> afield here at the end of the episode, but th this is a really great story and I can't wait to discuss it. Yeah, I'm very excited about it too. I mean, it is such a strange motive and, and maybe something we'll talk about in the discussion is, you know, whether or not Dr. Black really is motivated versus compelled. I mean, I mean, some of the language here, I think, is language of, of, addiction, right? And I think that's really quite interesting. But you're you're also right to point out that there's just no utility to this. You know, he's not a doctor trying to discover something that can be useful in healing patients of some sort. He just wants to know if he can do this or not. And so he kills his wife and not just kills his wife. I mean, he takes her soul out. He sucks her soul out with a machine and carries it around in a rock. I mean, it's it's horrible. It's a really horrifying, really creepy story. Uh, but I think we have come to the end of the recap portion of it. So we will we will save all of that for the discussion in uh, two weeks' time. So that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. If you'd like to support the network and get access to all our bonus episodes, including The Soldier's Rest by Arthur Mackin, and also to have your say in what we cover... Please join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. Well, we'd also love it if you would head over to the Clay Temple forums or stop by our subreddit and let us know what you thought of this story. I think we're both pretty high on it and are, are looking forward to the discussion, but uh, we'd love to know what uh, your response to this was as well. So next time, we will be back with our discussion episode about the inmost light. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.